Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Indeed, today is the day. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Wednesday, November the 6th, 2019. We're going to talk this morning about fairness. And so I want you to think about uh, the first time that something happened that you consciously remember was not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair. I was in fifth grade. I'm sure that I had other experiences prior to fifth grade where something was not fair and I made a stink about it. But um, I distinctly remember in fifth grade uh, feeling like I had earned an award. I had done what was necessary. I was the one who was deserving of the prize. And it was instead given to someone else. And I was... Now, Now, let me just also say here, I got lots of prizes. It was not as if I um, was not celebrated. Um, I was probably more celebrated in fifth grade than any other year of my life that I can recall. And so it was fair. Now, now that I can understand it as an adult and I like have the perspective that I have now, it was totally fair that some other person would get the award that I believed I so clearly deserved. Because after all, I had gotten all of the awards that led up to the Pinnacle Award. And if you have won all of the weekly awards and the monthly awards, then obviously you are the person by rights who should get the big award, the annual award. But that's actually not how fairness works in the world. I mean, it's the way we understand it as children, um, but it's not really how fairness should work in terms of doing what's best for each person at the time. So what if fair means doing what each person really needs most at the time? What if that is the definition of fairness? We're going to talk about fairness uh, with Bill English. He and I had a conversation that ended with a, con- with, with, ended with a question like, I wonder what God's fairness doctrine is. And so Bill spent the whole week thinking about that, and he and I are now going to talk about God's fairness doctrine, and we're going to talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean to have God's understanding, God's sovereign understanding of fairness. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking with Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com about fairness. He has actually posted God's system of fairness on BibleAndBusiness.com, and so you can read that whole thing. Um, Bill, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. 
So thanks for taking on the assignment uh, of the week <laughs> and digging around in what the Bible has to say about fairness versus what the world has to say about fairness. So um, maybe as a, maybe as a starting point of the conversation, um, let's just talk about who gets to decide what is fair. God gets to decide what's fair. That's where I landed on this. I in the article I did a brief overview of how America looks at fairness, and then I and I spent some time uh, looking at what the scriptures say about fairness. And they don't. The scriptures don't talk about fairness directly very often. It's illustrated uh, in a number of places, but it's not didactically discussed in the in the scriptures. Uh, but I realize that fairness has to start with God's sovereignty, because if you take any other starting point, I think you're going to end up in the wrong place. And the reason that, that I did that was because um, is as as God, he is sovereign, therefore he gets to decide what's fair, right? He sets the rules. He gets to decide what's moral, what's immoral. He gets to decide what's just and unjust. And so he gets to decide what's fair and unfair. So that's where we start with that, God's sovereignty. And then I just think there's just a whole lot of cultural confusion um, about these terms. And we probably, well, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> I think it's fair to say we do not think biblically about this concept. We think Americanly. Oh, yes, very much so. That's a, I made that up. Americanly. Is, Amer- is Americanly a word? It is. I'm, I'm, it I'm is now. Use it. It, it is, is now. It is now. Yeah. So when I say we think American, part of the LaBerge dictionary, isn't it? It's, it is. It's, people ought to start keeping note. Yes. Yes. Uh, nervousing <laughs> is another word I like to use Ooh. that I'm not sure is actually in the uh, in the English lexicon yet, but I'm working on it. Nervous. There are lots of things that um, that are nervousing to me. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So when I say that we tend to operate with an American understanding of fairness. What do I mean by that? Because we really do need to juxtapose that against a biblical understanding of fairness. Well, what I would, how I would answer that question would be to say that in the American system of fairness, it's individualistic and it's like on a fulcrum teetering and you're trying to get balance between two competing elements, people, ideas, actions, whatever it is. Uh, because fairness is so closely tied to justice, uh, you have to, in, in America, we have an individualistic way of doing justice. The offender who commits the crime pays for the crime, right? That's how, that's how we do justice in America, at least in theory. Um, in God's system of justice, his system is substitutionary. The offender of the crime in God's system of justice Uh, doesn't have to pay for the crime because Christ already paid for it on the cross. And so you have this idea of substitutionary um, justice or fairness in God's system, whereas you have an individualistic um, system here in America of fairness. Yeah, and I think that the word equality comes to mind. It does. um, When we're talking about an understanding of fairness here in the United States and and just maybe from a Western understanding of the word. And that's just really not, in terms of what the Bible says, it's just really not what fairness, how God thinks about it. Right, right. God God doesn't think about fairness in terms of how we do. God thinks about fairness in terms of what will bring him glory. You know, when you look at when you look at uh, uh, the story of Exodus in the first 10 chapters and how God continually brought more plagues on Egypt precisely so that Pharaoh would know that he is God, was that fair? 
Well, in an in American sense, a lot of what God did there was unfair. But from God's perspective, it brought him glory. And so from his perspective, yeah, it was fair. And that's that's where I go back to the sovereignty thing, where I'm saying that God gets to decide what's fair. Not us, not you, not me, for sure, not me. And so it, it just seems to me that, that God, uh, in, in a number of places in the Old Testament, is being very unfair. And yet when he receives glory, I think he looks at that as fair. I think our tendency, Bill, and again, I'm having a conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com, and we're talking about God's doctrine of fairness. Um, uh, Bill, I think that when when I, when I when I experience something or I witness something that does not seem fair to me, I um, I might have uh, I might be inclined to judge God, to sit in judgment, yeah, yeah. as if I would be in a position to say to God, well, that's not fair. God, you should be doing that differently. And I think that's the that's what you're trying to get at here. God is ultimately sovereign, and whatever God decides to do in a situation, um, that's really right and righteous, and I am really wrong and unrighteous to question him. Exactly. And isn't that the whole point of the Romans passage, right? It, uh, it's a Romans... Uh, I'm scrolling nine. up to find it here. Yeah, thank you, yeah, Roman, yeah. Romans 9. And in in one part of that passage, in verse 20, Paul says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? If Who are we to question God? Oh, I feel like that comes up in the Job story as well, right? It does. I mean, it yeah. does. And, and yet Job would be the place that we would point to, I think, most quickly and say, that's not fair. That is not fair. And it wasn't fair if from but, our perspective. That's right. That's exactly right. All right, let's take a uh, let's take a very brief break, um, and l- when we come back, let's dig around in some of these passages where we learn these principles of uh, God's doctrine of fairness from the Bible. I'm talking with Bill English. You can check all all of this out at BibleandBusiness.com, where Bill has graciously posted God's system of fairness. We'll be right back. All right, today, as we seek to reconnect the eternal with the everyday and honor Jesus in the way we walk our faith out into the world that he so loves, we're talking about fairness. Uh, And we're talking about the difference between the way we think about fairness in our culture and the way that the Bible teaches us to think about fairness from God's perspective, which is uh, just a part of his sovereign will working itself out in the context of human history, ultimately to bring himself glory. That's really what is fair. Whatever brings God glory, you know, ultimately that's what is uh, that's what is fair. So Bill English and I are talking about this. He did the hard work this week of, uh, of digging around in the scriptures to, to discover this uh, fairness doctrine of God. Um, and so, Bill, let's jump to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Um, why are we looking at this passage in the context of this conversation about fairness? Um, and what did you learn in terms of a principle from from this passage? Well, when I was doing my word studies as part of, you know, building this out, First um, John 1, 8, 9 came up because of the word just. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And, and it hit me for the first time. Why would why would uh, God need to tell us that he is just in forgiving our sins? 
you know, why would the why would he have to say that he is being fair in forgiving our sins? And it, it just the light bulb went on for me and connected the dots a little bit that what we did to Christ on on the cross was so totally unfair that God needed to remind us that when he forgives our sins and lets Christ hold the penalty for our sins, that that is just, that is fair. And that is the core, really, of God's system of fairness, which is um, it is substitutionary. It's not individualistic. And so the violence that we did, all of us did, not, not, the, not the Jews back then, but all of us did to Christ uh, to put him on the cross and then uh, God forgiving our sins, that is actually a just thing because he endured the unfairness, not us. I think that is a particularly helpful um, mental hook for us to set in our minds in this conversation, particularly as, um, you know, as I come up against stories like Job, which it's just much harder for me to explain, let's say to a child, um, why that is just. It's, it is easy when you have the cross at hand and it you is. can say, okay, there's no question this was unfair. By the world standards, there's just no question this was unfair, and yet it was perfectly just. And that's the eternal perspective, right? That's that's one right. of the things that you and I talked about offline, is that in order for us to really grab God's viewpoint on fairness, we have to have an eternal perspective. So within that in that short amount of time, within those few days when Christ was crucified, yeah, it was unfair. But when you look at it from an eternal perspective and all of the good that it has done, I think Christ looks at that and goes, yeah, that was fair. What what happened to me was fair because I got the the reward of having a relationship with literally billions of people who chose to be in relationship with me. Hmm. Okay, I would love to um, to move to Proverbs chapter two verses one to eleven, um, and the reason that um, that I lift this up obviously is because you lifted it up in uh, in this study, and again, you guys can go to bibleandbusiness.com. And you can find this piece uh, that Bill English put together and posted called God's System of Fairness. Um, when we talk about learning, learning God's System of Fairness, this is an excellent passage. So, Bill, um, I'm going to actually read. I'm going to read the passage. Sure. Uh, the first 11 verses of Proverbs 2. Okay. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? It, it is beautiful. Talk about um, the promises that we can learn uh, about what is fair from this passage. We learn how God thinks about fairness and we learn about his system. If A, we accept God's words and store up his commands within us. Now, that word store up in the Hebrew literally means to treasure. So we store up his commands within us. And B, if we apply ourselves to fully seek out insight and understanding, 
I think through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Remember James 1, God gives us wisdom if we ask it. Uh, And so, again, starting with God and learning his words, storing up his commands, uh, drawing close to God over time, we will learn God's system of fairness because we'll learn his heart and we'll gain an eternal perspective on all of the present-day activities that are going on. I'm thinking here... um about Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, including the way you think about fairness. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how does that happen? Well, that happens when we saturate our lives with the Scripture and we seek to understand God's character and the principles by which He is operating this world, um, and that we, you know, accept the reality that we're living under His sovereignty and in in the grace of of what's demonstrated at the cross. Romans 12, verse 2 ends this way. Then, then, so this is after the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think this brings it full circle. This gets us back to understanding what is fair by understanding and accepting that it's whatever brings glory to God. Exactly. Yeah. I I, I couldn't have said it better myself. All right. Well, I do love the way that you have said it, however, and I want to direct people to that because I really do appreciate you, um, you know, sort of out of the outgrowth of the conversation that we had last <laughs> week. You like, right, taking on this challenge and, um, and doing the hard work. So I want to encourage people to go to BibleAndBusiness.com. Check out Bill's piece that's posted there, God's System of Fairness. The passages that we talked about today are outlined there, um, as well as several other passages. There are some parables that, uh, that rise to mind when we think about fairness. I guarantee you, when you think about fairness and unfairness, there are some parables where you think to yourself, that's not fair. Um, and uh, and Bill explains and digs around in those as well. Um, Bill, thank you so much. Um, I don't have an assignment for you to work on next week, but I do look forward to your being back and our talking again. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right, friends, uh, we got another uh, we got another half an hour to go. So don't go anywhere. Um, in the next half hour, I'm going to be talking with Michelle Couchette about her book, Relentless. Um, She is a person acquainted with suffering. Her life has been dedicated to the Lord, and yet she, like Job, has suffered tremendously, and yet she has experienced the relentless pursuit of God throughout all of it. So don't miss my upcoming conversation with Michelle Couchette. Where is God when life seems unfair? Or where is God when life is filled with so much suffering? So whether you struggle with illness or financial hardship, depression, the presence of persistent physical pain, pretty much anything that provokes us to ask why, or why me, or why now, or why this, um, those things that cause us to question God's presence or God's goodness, those um, those things that make us cross our fingers behind our, our back and, um, and hope, hope that God is real. It's in those moments that we need to be reminded that God is and that God is with us and that God will never forsake us. So up next, my conversation with Michelle Cachette, who knows that truth from her own life. She also knows it from her study of scripture, and she shares it all with us in her new book, Relentless. As a specialist on teens, I'm not big on formulaic solutions. But even so, I've got tips for you that have stood the test of time. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. 
I picked up a few helpful lessons along the way of living with 2,700 teens. So if you could use some help sharpening your parenting skills, here are five things to remember. First, rules without relationship causes rebellion. Second, discipline is all about building character. Third, don't be afraid to let your teen experience the pain of consequences. Fourth, focus your energy on training, not enforcing. And finally, choose your battles wisely. There's no guaranteed formula for absolute success with your teen, but apply this five-point wisdom in your home, and someday your son or daughter will thank you. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joined today by Michelle Cushette. You can find her at Michelle, which has one L, and Cushette, which is spelled C U S H A T T dot com. So Michelle Cushette dot com. Michelle, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. I'm so thrilled to be here. Oh, well, I am thrilled uh, to have you. We are talking today about your almost released forthcoming book, Relentless The Unshakable Presence of a God Who Never Leaves. I actually want to introduce people to the conversation by reading uh, a few lines from very near the end of the book. Okay. You say, four years ago, I would have told you my biggest battle was fighting cancer and trying not to die. I now know otherwise. The biggest battle I fought and continue to fight is the one for my faith. It's surviving the complexity of childhood and suffering of adulthood without becoming blind to life's beauty. It's deciding to push in and trust when I want to pull back and self-protect. It's choosing relationship over and over again in spite of the risk, because I know true healing will always be found in connecting. And it's making space for mystery without letting my questions about God cloud what I know to be true about him. Um, Michelle, you are a person um, acquainted with when Jesus says, you know, life, you're going to have trouble in this life. You are acquainted with what he is talking about. And in this book, you help us um, walk through the realities of life and do so by faith, even when we doubt. It, have I about got what you're going for in Relentless? I, I think I need to hire you as my publicist because that was about perfect. Uh, what The section you read really sums up what this book is about and really what my story is about. I've loved Jesus my whole in lo whole life. I've always loved him. And yet my life has been a series of one devastating crisis after another. And at some point in time, you you lift up your head and go, okay, what what's going on? God, why, why all of this pain? Why no relief? And learning how to hold on to him in those places really is the test of faith. So I love that you give us these, uh, you, you identify for us um, these 12, what we'll call altar stones throughout the scriptures um, that are substantial, they're unmoving, they they absolutely testify to the reality of who God is. Um, mm -hmm. And then I love that you use the living stones uh, image as well, because I think that that is a precious, precious place to, uh, you know, discover who we are. So let's um, let's talk about... Just, I, I want to, I, maybe I'll approach it this way. There's just a lot of people who will say, you know what, I did everything right. 
I I don't deserve this. Um, if God is good, if God is real and God is good, why am I going through whatever it is that I'm going through? Why am I experiencing this? Those are all questions that you address in the context of really building this very substantial case that God is and God is good and he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. Um, and so talk about that. Talk about the realities that people experience in life and how they really are this sort of contest every single day um, yes. for the faith. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we equate the presence of pain with the absence of God. We think that if I am in pain, whether emotional pain, physical pain, you know, some kind of relational pain, that somehow God must be absent, not real, or he doesn't care about us. And yet, uh, as I go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what I discovered, and this is part of the destroying and rebuilding of my faith, what I discover is God is where the pain is over and over and over again. When there is suffering, when there is pain, he is there. Now, I don't always, I don't understand why he doesn't always intervene. I don't understand why he doesn't always take the pain away, but I can't deny the facts. And that's part of what this, this 12 stone journey does is going back to the beginning and looking at these key places in scripture where God should have pulled away or shut us down or withdrawn his love and affection from us. But rather than pull back, he actually per pushed deeper in. He drew closer. Uh, and we see that most beautifully in, uh, in the incarnation when Jesus, God in the flesh, came to be with us. Uh, we, are, we are a humanity that is broken and messed up and confused and lost. And God should have just washed his hands of us. And rather than walk away, he said, you know what? I love them so much. I'm going to send myself. I'm going to send myself. I, I'm going to put on human flesh and I'm going to be with them. And that's really the promise, right? That this, I would say this book hangs on that promise. Jesus is with us. God is with us. In Christ, he is with us in a very, very uh, specific and ultimately eternal way. Um, but this this sense that I might sometimes have that God has abandoned me, um, that as you articulated, I think that's just actually beautiful. We equate the presence of pain with the absence of God. That is not true. And yet there are so many spaces and places over the course of a lifetime, where I am tempted to believe that. I am tempted to believe the lie that God does not want to be with me, that God has turned his back or wandered off to more interesting people or, or you know, uh, more interesting things. And that's just not true. Why is it that I need to build up my arsenal um, of, like, the substantial reality of who God is and that he's not going to leave and that he's not going to forsake me. I need to build up that arsenal when I am not in the midst of a, a crisis of pain. We need to build up uh, that arsenal of evidence, those facts, before the emotion hits, before the bottom falls out. We need to have something to look at that's outside of our circumstances that we know will stand the test of time. Uh, because when the bottom falls out, let me tell you, I've I've been through cancer three times, cancer of the tongue. I've had two-thirds of my tongue removed. My body's been cut open and scarred. I have functional disabilities that I will have for the rest of my life as a result of this. Not to mention so many other things happen. When you're in a place of pain, all you can hear is the pain. That's all you can hear. That's all you can feel. We need to have, we need to have like Joshua's 12 stones, an altar that stands 
testifying to God's love and affection and presence with us that is relentless. So that way, when pain overwhelms us, we can look at it and remind ourselves of God's history, his perfect history of being present with his people. Uh, you know, we can bear almost anything. We can bear just about anything as long as we know we're not alone. Pain is bad, but pain in isolation is impossible. We can endure the worst of life if we could believe and see and hang on to the reality of God's relentless affection and nearness with us. And that's why we have to build it up outside of our pain. So when the worst happens, our faith will stand no matter what. So that is the name of the book, Relentless, The Unshakable Presence of a God Who Never Leaves. Michelle Cachette is the author, uh, and she and I will be right back. Returning to my conversation with Michelle Cachette, you can find her at michellecouchette.com. Michelle has one L, and Cachette is spelled C-U-S-H-A-T-T, so it's michellecouchette.com. We're talking about her newest book, Relentless, The Unshakable Presence of a God Who Never Leaves. Um, Michelle, um, let, me, let me jump to this. Uh, you talk about making a choice um, in the midst of pain, and you talk about making a choice after an experience of suffering. Um, Talk about, uh, there's a lot of power in the word choice, and there's a lot of power in my sense that I can make a choice. So talk about those choices that we need to make. Well, ultimately, all of this boils down to trust. What am I going to trust? Am I going to trust my circumstances or my pain, or am I going to trust the God that is bigger than all of it? I have to decide We think we want answers, and at some level, we want answers. We want an explanation. We want somebody to black and white tell us why these things are happening and when it's going to get better. But answers, it's so interesting. If somebody could give us a nice, neat, easy answer, I don't think it would really satisfy because our pain is far far too big for a nice, easy answer. What we want is presence. We want someone, we want a God who is far bigger than our ability to unravel him. And that means if we need a God that big, there will always be mystery. So ultimately, I'm going to have to make a leap. I'm going to have to decide what I'm going to choose to believe. Am I going to believe what I've read from Genesis to Revelation about God's character? Or am I going to believe the voice of my pain? And that's the choice that we have to make. I had a friend ask me not long ago, what's the most difficult thing you do? What's the most difficult thing for you right now? And I said, it's a choice I make every day to get up and live. You know, living in a body that is so compromised by pain, I have chronic pain, ongoing difficulty. Every day is very hard to live in my body. I'm only 48. I'm not old. Uh, And every day I have to decide, am I going to wake up um, angry, sad, bitter about what I don't have, or am I going to wake up and choose to trust that this God who loves me and promised to never leave me will somehow bring some kind of good for my pain, will somehow do some kind of work that could not be accomplished any other way. And that is the choice that I get to make. And what a beautiful thing that I have that choice that I have the choice to either live in the promise of God's presence and affection or live in the destruction of the suffering of the human life. 
Um, that That's something that all of us have, have to make regardless of the extent of our suffering. We have to decide where we're going to place our trust. So the process that you take the reader through um, in Relentless, which is the book we're discussing today, again, you can find it at michellecouchette.com. Uh, and it, and it's <clears throat> it's just excellent. The journey that you take the reader through is this journey of of really going and collecting these altar stones for myself. And so um, you invite me as the reader to return to my very earliest place, space, memory. This is I'm going to collect a stone of the 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 first time that I really knew that God was with me. So take people back to the willow tree. Oh, the willow tree. There was this willow tree in my front yard when I was about four or five, six years old. Uh, And I would go out there and I would, you know, willow trees, they're so interesting. The branches kind of hang to the ground. But when you're a child inside the branches, it looks like the rooms of a house, right? So it was like my own little castle, my own little house. And I had a bedroom and a kitchen and I could go in there and play pretend. But there was just this sense of safety, of being held. Uh, there was a sense of that I had purpose, that my life was important, that I just felt the safety there. Uh, And, you know, what's interesting, metaphorically, as I left the willow tree and grew into my adult skin, I lost some of that because of the reality of life. But what I want us to do is to go back to those early days where we felt the sweetness of God's presence. It doesn't mean your life was perfect then. But there was a moment, there's hints of God's reality even then. And if we can go back to the beginning and find hints of God's presence there and start to establish that that stone, then we, again, this becomes a fact that we base our faith on, uh, a, a memory, a fact, a truth, a stone that we base our, base our faith on that then can stand even when we have this horrible circumstance that happens. So as, um, as the reader journeys with you uh, in, in the book, Relentless, and I'm, I'm collecting these altar stones, not only from the scripture, but I'm also seeking to see in my own life the things I may have missed. I really, I really appreciated that as a part of, um, of what you invite the reader to do. What are, the, what are the things that I might have missed? Where are, um, you know, as I look back and I survey my life and I'm tempted to recall um, tragedies and, and, and places where maybe I was betrayed or my heart was broken or I experienced um, disease and and to look at those and and the spaces in between those and say hey god never left like it these are not spaces and places where god was absent there are times that i can identify that my my perception of god's presence was off can you talk about um the way that the enemy of God really does lie to us a lot about who God is and where God is in the midst of everything and how doubt and faith are are really pretty closely related. When I was seven years old, my parents decided to move from Arizona to Illinois, which for a seven-year-old who had only known one home, like only known one location, was devastating for me. I remember being in my parents' family room I'm hiding behind the drapes, sobbing because I didn't want to move. I didn't want to leave. Well, what ended up happening is we moved to Illinois and we became part of a church there that was such a key part of the development of my faith. This was a vibrant 
Jesus-loving, Bible-loving church that was absolutely instrumental to making me into the woman that I am today. Um, but if you would have asked a seven-year-old girl crying in the drapes, she would not have been able to see any good coming from that pain. The enemy was convincing me that the worst thing that could happen was to move to another state. I know this now as a 48-year-old that that move was the best thing that happened to me at that point in time. But in the moment, I didn't see it. This is what the enemy does. He, he, he pushes into our pain. It's like having an open wound that somebody's poking a finger in. He pushes into our pain and tries to convince us that God is cruel and God is heartless and God is mean and he can't be trusted because he's causing you this pain. And what happens is then we start to listen to those lies and we start to doubt the goodness of God. Um, what's, so, what's so amazing, though, is that when we, when we wrestle with our doubts, when we follow that trail of breadcrumbs, you know, that those questions that we have and those doubts that we have, if we continue to seek after the truth and follow them, we will actually land. Our doubt could actually turn out to be the makings of a deeper faith. When we walk through those seasons, as hard as they are, we get to witness, witness the deliverance of God on the other side. Uh, that move was just a tiny incident in my life. But there are things right now that I, if I had a pair of drapes, I would cry into them right now because the circumstances seem impossible. And God's trying to remind me, do you remember that seven-year-old girl? I'm going to do the same thing now too. Trust me. Trust me. And I either need to listen to the voice of the enemy who's poking into my pain, or I listen to the voice of God who has delivered me so many times before and trust that what he's done before, he will do again. He will carry me through. Amen. Amen. The book is Relentless. The author is Michelle Cachette. You can find it and you can find Michelle at michellecachette.com. I'm going to spell it M-I-C-H-E-L-E-1-L. Couchette, C-U-S-H-A-T-T. Michelle Couchette, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It was my pleasure. We'll be right back. So when I say the word home, where does your heart go? And when we think about um, what the Bible has to say about home, we think about homeland and we think about uh, people as a home, and we think about our family home or our place of origin. I hope we also think about the home that we have um, with the Father. You know, Jesus reminds us that in his Father's house, there are many, many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I'm thinking here about John chapter 14. If it were not so, you know, he, he would not have told us that he goes and to prepare, goes and prepares a place for us. But having said that he is going to prepare a place for us, we can trust that that's true. And we can trust that um, we're going to live with him in the Father's house forever. Um, I'm thinking about Paul, who talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, this physical body, is torn down, we have a building from God. We have a house not made of hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a home. And so as, um, as you face the challenges of this day, as you face the questions, um, let me encourage you to keep at least one eye on home. Keep at least one, uh, one eye on, on our eternal home in heaven together, uh, the Father's house. 
All right, friends, uh, Peter Kapsner will be with you hosting the next couple of days as I travel home to Indiana to the funeral of my Aunt Marilyn. Um, and thank you in advance for your prayers. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.